Hello, this is Andrew Brewer. I am your host of the Healthcare Insights in Northwest North Carolina podcast brought to you by Northwest Area Health Education Center at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Today's guest is Dr. Amy Guzek. Uh, who is a specialist in stroke care, and we're going to talk about a lot about that. She got her BA at Colgate University, did her internship at University of Virginia School of Medicine, residency in adult neurology at the University of Virginia School of Medicine, and vascular neurology fellowship at University of California at San Diego Medical Center. So good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to start out. What's the latest in stroke knowledge and stroke care? Yeah, so stroke is, is constantly evolving. So just to start, stroke is uh, is composed of two different types of stroke. So ischemic stroke is a clot-based stroke, and hemorrhagic stroke is a bleeding type of stroke. You may hear about both of those types. I'll be talking mostly about clot-based stroke or ischemic stroke today. Um, but, but strokes are generally caused by blood clots in the brain. The treatments that we have for this are either clot busters, medications that can break up those blood clots, or clot removal, trying to go in surgically and remove those clots. Um, over the past 10 years, I've been here at Wake Forest, um, we've seen a lot of advances in stroke and we're continuing to see those advances now. So the, the latest um, excitement is that we're switching to a new medication that we think um, will be easier to deliver and also may uh, improve treatment of patients with those clot-based strokes. Now, uh, you know, the the uh, availability of something like Narcan for opioid overdose, will there ever be something that's uh, quick and easy to access if you notice someone having a stroke that you could administer right away? Because I know time is one of those essential elements for recovery from stroke. So is it, would there ever be something like that? I mean, we have the, was it the AEDs on the wall for, for heart and Narcan for opioids? What, what about stroke? Yeah, it's so tricky for stroke because you really can't tell from symptoms alone if it's one of those clot-based strokes or a bleeding type of stroke, and the treatment is vastly different. So with a clot-based stroke, you want to give clot busters. The, the risk of those, because it's a heavy-duty blood thinner, is to cause bleeding. So you really don't want to be giving that to a bleeding type of stroke. So the most important thing is to get to the hospital as quickly as possible so that we can determine which of those paths to go down. I think, unfortunately, because of that, we're never going to have easy availability in malls or grocery stores or things like that with this medication, but there are a lot of efforts made to move up that treatment earlier if possible, both through um, systems within ambulances to potentially get some of that information earlier, or um, one of the things that we work hard on is, is expanding our telestroke network so that we're really able to give treatment to patients at their closest hospital and not make them have to come into Winston to get these treatments. We want them available everywhere. So telestroke is is part of the diagnosis, just being able to to dis determine what if it's a stroke and what type of stroke and then what the course of care. How do you how do you know and how do you differentiate what type of stroke it is? Yeah, so through telestroke we're able to evaluate a patient in a hospital that might not have access to neurologists. So we cover 21 hospitals across the state with our atrium partners. It's an even broader network about 45 
hospitals across the state. Um, and so that brings a neurologist to the bedside, even if there's not one in the hospital, which is really great. So I'm able to then help evaluate, um, examine a patient, do an, a brief neurological exam to help the emergency department um, doctors and providers to, to diagnose. The, the real critical thing before treatment is getting a CT scan because that's going to be the defining factor between a clot-based stroke and a bleeding type stroke. Um, but the telestroke helps facilitate that and really make sure that the expert care is at the bedside, even if there's not a neurologist in the hospital. Now, are the causes different for those two types? Interestingly, a lot of the risk factors are the same. Things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, all of those things weaken the blood vessels or potentially narrow the blood vessels. So a clot-based stroke can be a narrowing of a blood vessel um, until it doesn't have blood flow through there and there's dead tissue beyond that. Or a bleeding type of stroke is where high blood pressure can weaken the, the uh, blood vessel wall over time and that can cause it to be leaky um, and then have an aneurysm rupture and potentially bleed. So interestingly, a lot of the, the risk factors are similar there are also very similar risk factors to heart disease. So it's a lot of things that patients, doctors are already taking care of. Um, again, I said high blood pressure, high cholesterol, smoking. Um, all of those things can affect the heart, can also affect the blood vessels going to the brain. So with the kind of obesity epidemic and type 2 diabetes, has stroke been on the rise as well because of those sort of lifestyle, behavioral type yeah, all of those things contribute to risk factors, certainly. Um, and I think it's interesting because over the years, the uh, morbidity and mortality or death uh, from stroke had actually been decreasing for quite a while. And that was in part due to just better therapies and better understanding of aggressive blood pressure monitoring and cholesterol management, improving um, stroke care and stroke prevention. But unfortunately, that's not consistent across the whole population. There's a lot of disparities in care, both on location where you are across the state, if there's uh, adequate stroke systems of care in your area. And unfortunately, also we see um, racial and ethnic disparities in care uh, with black patients, Hispanic patients, unfortunately not always getting those um, higher level of blood pressure monitoring or treatment. Um, and, and the um, improvement, the amount of improvement seen in those populations with the Im improved treatments hasn't been as dramatic. The, the one other thing I'll say about recently is we've also seen an uptick in strokes because of COVID. So the infection, um, we think, has some, uh, some component of vascular um, involvement. And so with that, we're seeing more clotting and we're seeing really large strokes. So we're also recommending our patients to be vaccinated and prevent themselves from getting COVID to really lower that risk of stroke and heart attack as much as possible. So back to COVID, um, the way I understand it, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, so it starts out in the nasal passages in the lungs and it starts out as respiratory, but then it sort of evolves into more of a cardiovascular type of disease. Is that true? Yeah, I think we're still learning about it. Um, I think there's two things that we pay attention to in stroke. One is that uh, infections and viruses of all types have always increased inflammation, and that can increase the rate of things like stroke, heart attack. 
Um, but we also think that, that COVID specifically does have some component of hypercoagulability or inc increased clotting, and that, of course, can increase risk of stroke there, too. Now, is that just across the board, or is that if you've already have some some already uh, comorbidities or, mm -hmm. or, or disease? Because I've had COVID twice now, and now I'm like, oh, is my risk of stroke higher? But I'm a pretty healthy guy. Hey. Yeah, so unfortunately, it's across the board. Um, certainly, the risk factors that are concerning for COVID are also concerning for the complications from COVID, so things like stroke and clotting. Um, but we've seen even people with relatively mild COVID have larger strokes than we would expect. Um, and so I think there's a component of both. To your point, it's not we don't think so far that it's a forever risk of increased stroke. It's probably around the time of COVID, maybe in the weeks to months after the infection, but we're still learning some of that. So I don't have all the details there. Well, sticking with causes, is is uh, is there any one particular thing that stands out as a, a, a very high risk factor and in, in someone like, like um, you know, for someone like me, I'm I'm pretty healthy. I do you know eat right and exercise plenty and all this stuff. Um, if something were to happen like this, super stressful in my life, would that be a huge risk factor? Or if I all of a sudden decided oh, I'm gonna start smoking a pack a day, you know, would you know what 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 are those big things? Yeah, I think the smoking would have a bigger impact. We've certainly seen some people that have a really stressful event and maybe that tips you over the edge. And so maybe you already have some of those risk factors and that's just the thing that um, the straw that breaks the camel's back and then you have a stroke. Um, but most often what we see, the two biggest things that are that are somewhat controllable and really important for stroke care are uh, smoking cessation, quitting smoking. That's a, a thing that we have some influence over. And then also blood pressure management. If, if we could manage one thing, if we could lower everybody's blood pressure and keep it in a normal range, that would really help to prevent stroke. Now, is it smoking in particular or is it nicotine use in general? That's a good question. So a lot of uh, my patients and people ask me about vaping and other types of, of nicotine. So, um, again, it's something that we're still learning about because they just haven't been around long enough to have those long-term effects. I think that in the general consensus is that there's probably still some risk and even risk of stroke with those, but it's less than the, the, than the cigarette smoke itself, um, which has more of a vast uh, impact on the vasculature. Okay. Cause I, I understand nicotine can have a uh, an effect on blood pressure and mm -hmm. at least heart heart rate, I guess, too. That's right. Mm -hmm. Um, excuse me. Um, what what are some preventative things that you know for a healthy person? Uh, and for a not so healthy person, is there are are there medications that are taking taken like on a regular basis to to lesser your your risk of stroke? Um, on that side, and then for the healthy person, just you know, what are the recommendations there to, to lessen your risk? Yeah, so if you've never had a stroke, the really important thing is just to have a regular doctor that you're checking in with at least yearly and more if they're concerned about something. Watching for those risk factors that creep up as we get older, blood pressure, cholesterol, um, diabetes that we mentioned already. 
If you've already had a stroke, then we do recommend blood thinners. If you've had a, a clot-based stroke and ischemic stroke, we recommend blood thinners. Uh, antiplatelet medications like aspirin or clopidogrel are the most, most typical ones um, to help prevent another stroke. There's a, a group of patients that have strokes because of atrial fibrillation, an abnormal heart rhythm. And in that case, there's an increased risk of clotting in the heart that can then go up into the brain and cause stroke. And so for those patients, we need to use anticoagulation. Um, a lot of the newer medications like Eliquis, Xarelto, Pradaxa are the preferred ones now, although Warfarin or Coumadin is still used too. So <clears throat> with those those uh, anti-clotting drugs and stuff, I mean, that's one method to, to treat. Um, as far as bleeding, vascular uh, kinds of things, is, are there invasive procedures that are done to correct or, or to... To, to do whatever to a stroke patient. Yeah. So the other thing that we look for for stroke prevention is narrowing of the blood vessels. This might be what you're um, alluding to, but if we see narrowing in the blood vessels in, in the, the neck, so blood vessels going up into the brain, then sometimes we can do surgery um, to prevent a big stroke from happening. So you'll hear about carotid endarterectomy or carotid stenting. Um, those carotids go up into the neck from, or go up into the brain from your neck. Um, and if there's a lot of narrowing there, especially if you're having symptoms, TIA or kind of uh, stroke uh, warning signs, then we want to make sure that you're getting to see the surgeon as quickly as possible so we prevent a big bad stroke. Um, if Now let's dial back the clock um, 100 years, you know, what, and I'm, stroke's nothing new, I don't think. Um, what what, what uh, were some things that were done a century ago? When oh, it came gosh, to that's a great question. There wasn't a lot um, to be done for stroke. I think that the, the tricky things about stroke are, like I mentioned, knowing about the clot-based versus the bleeding type of stroke. So before there was CT scans and regular imaging, it was really difficult to know that piece of it. And there's also a very short time window that we can treat stroke. So most likely people you know, 100 years ago, weren't going to the doctor as quickly as they needed to to be able to get any of these treatments. So we couldn't even think about some of these treatments at that point. Um, we only have about four and a half hours to give these uh, heavy-duty blood thinning medications all to place and to neck to place um, before it's not safe to do so and before the risk of bleeding is higher than the risk of, of breaking up that blood clot. So it's a really short time window, and until we had the systems of care that allowed us to give that quickly and efficiently and safely, there really wasn't any treatment for stroke. Okay, so the best you could hope for was uh, less uh, impact and mm -hmm. and trying to make some sort of recovery from that. Mm -hmm. And speaking of recovery, I mean, what what are the what's the prognosis for someone who's you know had a pretty large stroke and has the, the usual you know losing the or the reduced use of their limbs or you know all the different things speech all the things that can be effective like how how uh, successful is rehabilitation these days? Yeah, so everybody's different depending on where you have the stroke that 
um, really dictates what symptoms you're going to have. So you might have a stroke on the left side of your body, which or on the left side of your brain, which controls the right side of your body. The right side of the brain controls the left side of your body. If it's in an area where there's not really critical pathways, you might not notice as much dramatic signs and symptoms. But if it's in an area that controls something like language, you're going to notice that right away. And so um, that's why it's really important for any change, any new weakness, numbness, speech change, vision change to get to the hospital right away. And I mentioned that for recovery, everybody's a little bit different, but we do see a pattern where most people have some improvement over the first six months, even up to a year. The way that we can maximize that improvement is to get as much therapy as quickly as possible. So um, if you're in the hospital for a stroke, going to rehab before going home to really get intensive physical therapy or speech therapy, whatever it is needed based on your symptoms, to get as much therapy as possible quickly, repair some of those pathways and help other parts of the brain take over. That's where we're seeing the best benefit. Um, what's the craziest thing you've ever heard or witnessed in, in stroke prevention and stroke care? Like any any old wives tales or, or you know, miraculous rebounds from, from massive strokes, anything like that? That's a great question. I think there, there are a lot of, um, you have to be a little bit skeptical of people that are promising full improvement from various things that have maybe like a little bit of research, but not consistent research. Um, there's some, there was at one point, there was some hint that maybe hyperbaric oxygen chambers would help. We haven't really seen that borne out in patient recovery. Um, some people have tried uh, stem cells, which I think is a, a promising future opportunity, but I think at this point we don't have enough information about where to put them or how they, how they work to make them effective, but there are still people in um, other areas of the country that are injecting them, and, and so you're, not, you're potentially taking a big risk without uh, having any good research for improvement. What about like brain stimulation, like electrical impulses and stuff like that to rewire some things that may have gotten disrupted? Is anything like that going on? I haven't seen so much of that, but one of the interesting things they do in rehab, they do do some of the stimulation of different nerves to get them uh, working again. They also do something if you're not, if you uh, have weakness on the left side of your body um, and you're trying to get that back, they'll uh, put a mitten over your right hand so you can't use it and you're forced to use the side that's weaker to kind of get some practice using that more. Um, so that's kind of a, you know, it seems both simple and um, and a little kind of silly at first glance, but it really is helpful um, in terms of recovery. Kind of like a mind over matter approach. Now, the, something I heard years ago, and, and tell me if you've heard of this one, um, someone is showing signs of stroke, put uh, uh, a pinch or a part of nutmeg seed uh, so crushed nutmeg in between the cheek and gum, sort of like a tobacco dip or snuff or something. But uh, I've heard that uh, in in the West Indies, that was an old uh, an old remedy that, that they say works. So I don't know if you've heard yeah. any anything. I haven't like heard that. that. I think it's funny because a lot of those uh, kind of old home remedies do often have like a, a kernel of of medical uh, research in them, like there's there's pieces of that. So for example, um, 
uh, aspirin, I think, you know, was a old home remedy at some point, but it now has become a really commonly used medication. But I think the important thing is to really make sure that you're you're talking it over with your doctor to make sure that it's also safe um, and, and that you're not just trying things that that you heard about before you know if they're safe and effective. Now, uh, a lot of changes, of course, in the last two and a half, three years. Um, what uh, has, there, has there been any trends or breakthroughs or advances or even setbacks uh, with with stroke care and diagnosis and stuff in the in the last in the COVID era? Let's call it. Yeah, there's been a lot of challenges to care for emergent patients in general over the last two years. But I think there's also been a lot of opportunity. We've we've had to um, really reevaluate a lot of our procedures and where we're taking care of patients. If we need to bring them all here, where we're also bringing all the really sick COVID patients, or if we can take care of them in their local hospitals with support from the neurologists here. So we've really relied on telemedicine quite a bit more. We've expanded it just from kind of the emergency room to being able to use it to take care of patients that are admitted to our local hospitals in Lexington, um, Wilkes, and Davie. We also have expanded it beyond the hospital to really be able to care for people once they go home. That's especially important for stroke patients because once you go home, sometimes it's hard to get up and about and hard to get out of the house. You're scheduling all of your therapy appointments and your family members are having to take work off to be able to drive you back into Winston and get in the parking garage and all of that good stuff. So the telemedicine has really been helpful for that. And um, we're, we're able to really track where it's helpful, who who needs care in person, but who need who can get care remotely and in their home safely and effectively. Um, and we're hoping to continue that really beyond the pandemic. Well, great. Well, um, what got you interested in that? And was there a defining moment in your training where you said, yeah, this is this is what I'm what I'm doing? For stroke or telemedicine or both? Well, both. Both, yeah. So I think stroke has, has been very exciting during my career in that we are um, learning a lot of new things and really improving the care of patients, hopefully reducing the amount of effects that stroke has um, and being able to improve their recovery. So that's been really um, important to me. And I think telemedicine, um, when I got involved in that and how I've expanded my role in that is because it really helps develop these really strong systems of care where we're able to care for patients all across the region and all across the state in the way that we would expect to care for them here at the big academic center. Not everybody needs to come here to the academic center to get the same level of care. And that's really important to me is to make sure that everybody has um, access to the to the late-breaking treatments um, to help recover from stroke. All right. Thanks for that. Um, so, Let's humanize you for a little bit. What what is what are your hobbies? What do you like to do when you're not yeah. uh, treating patients with, with with this? Yeah, so I've been here in Winston for about ten years now. I have a two year old, um, and my husband's a filmmaker and uh, has worked for the film festival. Um, has recently left that job to help uh, manage the back and forth of of daycare with the two year old, but but it's still active in that community. So we really like um, the arts community here in Winston-Salem. Uh, we like to go to the mountains, go to the beaches. It's really a great place to live. 
Well, great. Well, um, you're speaking at the 17th Annual Neuroscience Conference on November 18th at the Double Tree Inn here in Winston-Salem. Um, that is a uh, Northwest Area Health Education Center production and uh, Wake Forest School, University School of Medicine and all that. Um, anything you want to add to to that promotion for people that might be interested? Yeah, I'm really excited for a great day of talks about um, how we're advancing stroke care all across the region. Um, we have some really exciting topics. So um, anybody who wants to register, we also have continuing education credits. And so it's a great opportunity to, to hear um, from some of the stroke experts and um, have a fun time too. Well said, well said. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been very informative, and I hope our listeners enjoyed that. So um, anything else uh, you'd like to add before we sign off? Nope, just thanks for having me, and I hope to see everybody at the uh, conference. All right. Thank you so much, Amy. Thanks. Bye-bye.